Thank you, Philip. God bless you. God bless you. Loved ones, thank you in advance for what's going to take place over these next few weeks. And uh, we give praise to the Lord and we give a word of appreciation to you. Absolutely. Father, as we look into the life of David now, how we need your help. How we need the direction of the Holy Spirit and the strength of God to finish out this man's life well. We want to honor David, but more importantly, we want to honor you. And we know that every story of David's life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, has been given to us to help us grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us now, open our eyes, most importantly, open our hearts, and we give you thanks in advance in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We're talking today and next week about the rebellion. Um, let me find my text. There we go. We, we, we need to spend two weeks on the rebellion because this is one of the most phenomenal stories in all of Scripture. It's, it's one that would easily make a miniseries and a successful one on television. It contains all of the elements that make for a great story and some elements that make for a horrendous story. It's the story of David's son, Absalom, in rebellion against him. You say, how did this come about? How did, if the Lord forgave David for his sin, how did this come about? Well, we're going to talk about some of those things today. Next week, we're going to talk about the battle and David's victory, the return to Jerusalem. But it's not just a matter of one side losing and one side winning. There's much at work there, and that's what we want to pay attention to today. Let me give you the background that has brought us to the place that we are today. You remember David's sin with Bathsheba, the, the sin of adultery, the murder of Uriah, her husband. David didn't do it up close and personal, but he was responsible for it. For nearly a year, David thinks, I've got this hidden. But few things are as hidden as we think they are. And the prophet Nathan, receiving a word from the Lord, comes and tells David the story that we talked about last week about a man that had many, many sheep but took one sheep that belonged to his neighbor, the only sheep that neighbor had. It was um, Nathan's way of saying, David, you've, you had everything a man could ask for. And this is all this man has. He's given his life in service to you. And this wife of his is the only thing that he possesses. And you took it from him. And David got so angry telling it in the story form of a sheep that David said the man that did this should die. And then in 2 Samuel 12, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I have anointed you king over Israel and I've delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, and here's what sets the stage for the rest of the 
story. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied very quickly, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now, we are in a culture that has informed us that God has sought help and gotten it. Between Malachi and Matthew, he went to anger management and he got this tendency of wrath and judgment under control and now he's nice. But I want to tell you the same God that we see in Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. We are also serving a God that is only about healing. He's never about striking. He's only about blessing. He's never about correcting. But the writer of Hebrews says, if you don't find correction in your life, it may be because you're not a child of God at all. Now, let me get a little more specific here. Uh, we are about to begin a journey for two weeks through a field of landmines. Um, we're going to study an event that in my mind is absolutely unthinkable, unspeakable, the turning of a child and father against each other. We are, um, we, we've, we've got a history at this church. I've noticed, uh, I've been here, as you know, 25 years and something has happened every time without exception. Every time I've done a series on the family, every time, let me, let me say it another way, every time. I have done a series on the family, our attendance drops. Every time. Every time I said we're going to preach so many weeks on the family, attendance would drop and then it would take two or three months for it to pick back up to where it was before. You say, why? Because we are in a society that brings up, whenever you talk about family, it brings up such trauma, such difficulty. And people, after every series on the family I've done, that's one of the reasons why we do family series now, mostly in small groups. Not because I'm afraid to do it, but because we, we, we feel that the message we're giving to families is being lost in the trauma. So we, we, every time we've done it, we found that people have said, well, I don't want to talk about being a good daddy because of the daddy I had. I don't want to talk about being a good mother because of the rebellion of my children. Loved ones, I realize that today will bring up trauma. And I also want to say this at the beginning, and I'll probably have to say it two or three times before we finish this series on David. I am calling parents to step up and be what they ought to be to their children. But I also know that you can raise a child in a perfect environment and they can still walk in rebellion. Just ask God. 
He, that, that happened to him in the Garden of Eden, a perfect environment, a perfect relationship, and the child still rebelled. So I want to speak against the accusation of the enemy. I want to speak against the lies of Satan that are going to put you in a defensive mode and learn nothing from these two weeks, learn nothing about what we need to do because we're carrying the scars and the wounds of what a parent did to us or what a child has done to us. I look at the book of Malachi and the last Old Testament prophecy is that God would bring the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers. We're in an age of increasing blindness. And, and again, I, it's, I have, that's why I have to take these five minutes to stand against what the enemy's ploy is most certainly going to be. And that is to overwhelm us with our failure or our sense of grief or our sense of loss or our sense of inadequacy or the tendency to say, I must be a failure or I must do something wrong. Because that's what the devil is bringing to the surface when we start talking about family matters. Not a single amen, but I'm, I'll, I'll give you credit. I'll give you some on credit with that one. I am calling the parents to step up and especially the fathers. We, 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 we put a lot of pressure on the women in our society. Don't get an abortion. Keep your baby. Raise that child. And that pressure ought to be there. But, but just as much as, as mothers loving their children again, we need fathers to step up, quit being an absentee dad, quit blaming your child's rebellion on your dysfunction as a father. Because the bottom line is that at the end of the day, men, we are responsible. Our children may be wrong, our wife may be wrong, but we are responsible for our homes. And we've got to step up. How did this start? 2 Samuel 13, in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now, Amnon was the son of David by one woman, Tamar and Absalom by the, the, another wife of David. So they were half brothers and sisters, Amnon and Tamar. Amnon, Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why are you, the king's son, looking so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, this is the advice. Go to bed, pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her, then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to, your go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. 
Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here to my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. And what about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools of Israel. Please speak to the king. <coughs> he will not keep me from being married to you. Well, that was her defense. The king certainly would prevent this from happening, but it was her only line of defense. <coughs> But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away now would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate, ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. This woman's life is now ruined through no fault of her own. She used the word shame, but it was not shame because of anything she had done. It was shame that she would have to carry because of what someone had done to her. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. So Absalom was saying, we got to be careful how we handle it. Don't let this bother you. Well, it ought to bother her. Her life has just been ruined. In, in, the, in the culture of the times. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Ammon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Now, loved ones, listen to me before we dig a little bit deeper here. What we are reading about today and next week is a nightmare and it didn't just say, you can read the story in 15 minutes, but you've got to understand this was a building up of seething rage and hatred that covered 11 years, 11 years. You've got to understand, and I want to speak to every one of our young men and women that are SESL or young adults or our youth, and you're thinking about any kind of ministry you, the crucible of ministry is found in the, in the uh, grid of Saul, David, and Absalom. There's a book everybody that's going into ministry ought to read. It's by Gene Edwards. It's called A Tale of Three Kings. And when you look at the three kings, you have Saul, who was followed by David, who was overthrown by Absalom. And out of those three kings, two of the three are bad only one is righteous. That tells me that the likelihood of us finishing well, if you finish well, if you walk well in ministry, you will be in the minority. The majority of people do not finish well. And in Gene Edwards' book, there is a statement by David 
near the end of the book that is worth the price of the book and a lot more. This is what David says. When I was young, I was not an Absalom. And now that I am old, I will not be a Saul. Your life in service for the Lord is to be spent in that narrow path where from youth to old age, you refuse the rebellion of Absalom to find place in your heart. And when rebellion is put against you, you refuse the bitterness of Saul to fill your heart. And it's a lonely road. It's a lonely road. I want to tell you something. I cannot imagine what David was going through. I cannot imagine what Absalom went through. I, I have two sons and two daughters and I, I'm, I'm here to tell I'm not saying this to put them under any kind of pressure, but there is no scenario I can envision where I'm going to turn on my children. I, I hope if they need discipline, well, they're adults now, but I hope always in their life, if they've needed discipline or correction, I would do that. But I can't envision a scenario where I would turn against my son. I would rather be done wrong than turn against my son. I would rather be, be hurt than hurt my son. I, I, would, I, I understand why when at the end of the story, we're going to read about how this thing turned out and the death of Absalom and the victory of David. But I want to tell you, it was never on David's radar that his son would die over this. David never intended for Absalom to die. His explicit orders to Joab and the others were do not harm the young man Absalom because they saw a rebel, but David remembered a little boy playing on his daddy's lap. It never entered his mind that, that Absalom should die. He was going to reform him or at least restrain him. And the end of the story, the end of the battle is David lamenting, being heard all through the palace, being heard all over the battlefield. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And then there's the most solemn vow David ever, ever utters. Would to God that I had died in your place, Absalom. My son, my son. And that was not just flowery prose. David was saying, Absalom, if I had any idea the way this was going to turn out, I would have, I would have just turned over and died. I would have given my life gladly for you. This is not just a boy being a bad boy and daddy spanks him. It's relationships that go to the deepest part of the soul and it affected David that way. And then there's not even... Time to deal with Tamar, a woman who, in, in, in our culture, we would say she had a nervous breakdown and was forced to live in the household of her brother. He tried to take care of her. He tried to honor her. Absalom would have a daughter that he would name Tamar in an attempt to comfort her. Now, there was a better way to deal with Tamar's difficulty, and, and by no stretch of the imagination do we mean to imply that a victim of sexual abuse, their life is over. But in that culture, <coughs> in that culture, Tamar had very few options, very few possibilities, and it was a devastating thing that followed her to her grave. Now, 
Let's learn a little bit more about these guys. 2 Samuel tells us about Absalom, the kind of man that he was. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised, this is in your notes, for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Makes you just hate him, doesn't it, guys? <laughs> Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it came too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and his weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. He got his annual haircut, and his hair was so luxuriant and rich and thick that the hair that they cut weighed five pounds. Five pounds is a lot of hair. Now, after he comes to Jerusalem, David is leaving the town, and the scripture says that just as David left Jerusalem, Absalom came in another gate. And this is what Ahithophel said. Ahithophel was David's counselor. And this, he, he turns on David. And this is what he says to Absalom. Sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Now we'll find out that David left 10 of his concubines to take care of the palace. Um, the, the inference behind that is that he didn't want the palace destroyed. And the implication is I'm coming back. God's going to work this out hopefully. Then Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. In other words, he says, you sleep with your father's concubines. The people of Israel will understand there's no turning back. And anybody that's just half-hearted into this rebellion will now be in full bore. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. He slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. <clears throat> That was a fulfillment of what Nathan the prophet had said back in chapter 12. Now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. In other words, they said, whenever Ahithophel speaks, you're hearing from God. His wisdom is unreproachable. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Now you've got to understand, this is where the, the rebellion gained such momentum that there was no turning back. When David's closest, most trusted advisor cast his lot with Absalom. Now the principal characters in this story are Tamar, David. By now David is 58 to 60, probably 59 or 60 years of age. Absalom is about 25 to 28, as best we can tell, going back and, and tracing the record of David's life. There's Amnon and Ahithophel, Joab, and then three men, five men really, that flee with David, but David gives them a special assignment in this rebellion. Ittai, who is a mighty warrior, goes out with David, and David says, hey, you, listen, you're not even Jewish You've just joined us. You didn't sign on for this fight. Take your men and go back home. And Ittai said, when I committed to king, I commit all the way. I will go with you. And David says, well, come on. Hushai, who was one of David's primary advisors, says, king, I'll never leave you. I'm committed to you. And David said, Hushai, go back. This is what you tell Absalom. Tell him that just as I served your father, I'm here to serve you. I serve the office, not the man. And when he puts his trust in you, because Hushai was the second greatest advisor in the land, he said, whenever you learn of Absalom's plans, bring them to me. 
As David was leaving town, Zadok the priest had the Ark of the Covenant. You got to understand this. When David left town, he wasn't running with his tail between his legs. He was weeping as he left the city. They were moving at a slow but steady pace. And as they left town, Zadok had the Ark of the Covenant and was offering sacrifices to God as David and everybody passed by. All the inhabitants of Jerusalem were out there on the hill of the Mount of Olives weeping and crying because their king was leaving. And he says to Zadok, he says, I don't know what God is doing, but it's more important for me to leave the presence of God to be available for the people than the presence of God to be with me. He said, God may not bring me back. My sin has been so great. He may destroy me. Be it unto me according to the hand of the Lord, but the people must have the presence of God. So he says, Zadok, you take the priest and, and you take the ark and you go back to the tent because the people are going to need the presence of God more than they've ever needed the presence of God. And it could be that the presence of God might turn the heart of my son. He says, but now take your son and Abiathar, who's another priest, take his son, Jonathan and Ahimaaz. He said, and you guys listen. And when you get information, bring it to me. So it's intrigue and spies. The story in scripture covers 2 Samuel 13 to 16. The central truth is something that sounds glib, but you have to read the story and read it over and over again to understand the depth of the central theme. And it is this, God works and so must we. One, one Puritan writer put it this way, God, or excuse me, man proposes, but God disposes. In other words, the lesson of these two weeks that we're looking at now is difficult, but there are times when your life will seem so chaotic and so upside down, you don't have any reason to believe that God is working. But you must trust that he is and you must do your part because God is arranging something that we can never see. Proverbs says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And then Romans 8, 28, it's, it's, it's what I call one of those refrigerator scriptures. It's so benign and it's so happy we put it on our refrigerator. We don't put scriptures on our refrigerator that make us lose our appetite. But this is such a loaded passage. All things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, the first thing I want to tell you as we think this over, I think we all need to understand that there are some observations about sin in the life of God's child. We read in chapter 12, God forgave David for his sin, but there were still some consequences. Now, I love the moments when God forgives us and, and, and shows mercy, and there's no apparent consequence of our sin, at least that we can see. But I want to tell you this, loved ones, what God has been speaking to my heart for the coming year especially, is that whether we choose sin or righteousness, we are about to begin to see and understand compounding consequences. Uh, sin has compounding consequences. Praise God, righteousness has compounding consequences. You know, the Lord, when he was talking to the children of Israel about the Ten Commandments, when he said, don't have any idols before you, he said, I am the God that will visit 
the sins of the fathers to the second and third generation. So we know sin has compounding consequences. It doesn't mean that the second and third generations will be guilty of that sin, but it means they will bear the consequence of great grandpa's sin. But he went on and said this, but I will show righteous, I mean, I will show favor to the righteous for thousands of generations. Sin, it sounds like an old cliche and maybe that's where my mama learned it, but this is what she told me. Sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will always take you further than you meant to go. And sin will always keep you longer than you intended to stay. Forgiveness does not always eliminate punishment or chastisement. And forgiveness doesn't always mean there are no consequences of sin. Now we turn the page to chapter 13 and we see the tragedy of Amnon and Tamar. We've told the story and when he drove her out, Absalom took her into her home. But Absalom was in such a rage toward Amnon, he didn't say anything about it. And you say, why wouldn't he do that? Well, maybe Absalom started out with a sense of, this is my father's place. My father needs to take care of this. Um, maybe he said, it's better to say nothing than to say the wrong thing. I don't know. But David, in action, he waited two years, Absalom did, for his, for his father to do something. You say, well, Amnon was his son too, but Tamar was his little girl. There's no excuse for inaction on this. David's inaction meant that Absalom, his son, became Absalom, his enemy. Chapter 13, Absalom waits two years for David to deal with his injustice. Absalom begins to believe nothing's going to happen. So what does Absalom do? He says, let me invite all of my brothers for a banquet. I just completed a successful business deal. And boy, he did. It was having to do with shearing of sheep. He said, guys, I have made a windfall. I have got a bucket load of money and I want you to come and have dinner at my house. And all of the brothers of, um, of Absalom, all of the sons of David come. And at the end of the night, he speaks to his servants who were serving the barbecue and collard greens or whatever they were serving. And he says, there's Amnon, kill him. And they killed Amnon for his sin of raping his sister. And all of the other brothers of David flee in a panic. David gets word, Absalom has gone crazy and he's killed all of your sons. And the story tells us of the panic in David's heart until someone tells him, no, everybody's okay. It's just Ammon that was, that was killed. Revenge, however, does not soothe the anguish of Absalom. And loved ones, let me say this to those of us that might be carrying a grudge. Revenge is what we sometimes dream of. It's sometimes what we plan. But revenge does not soothe an anguished soul. The rest of Absalom's life was spent in deceit, hatred, and bloodshed. Chapter 13, Absalom was driven into exile for three years. He goes to the king of Geshur, who was his father-in-law. It was the king's daughter that was his mother. It was that marriage I told you about last week that was purely for political reasons. So he goes to his, uh, uh, his father-in-law. But David, uh, 
David's father-in-law, but David's intervention seemed to be a case of too little, too late. Three years, Absalom's in exile. Chapter 14, Absalom seeks permission to come to Jerusalem. All the while he's preparing for the betrayal and death of his father. David, after three years, says, okay, come back. Now, five years has passed since the offense. Three years more pass, and David said, all right, you can come back to Jerusalem, but you cannot see the king. You cannot even be in his presence. In, the, in chapter 14, with Joab's assistance, Absalom returns to Jerusalem, but not to the palace, not to the presence of his father. The physical ban was lifted, but Absalom remained in emotional exile. Two more years passed. Absalom is not welcomed into the king's presence. Joab is his go-between, if you read the story. We don't have time to go into all of that. But Joab had a, was a man that probably had more influence in the kingdom than anyone other than the king. And Absalom says, I want to see my father. I want to see my father. And Joab won't answer him. Joab won't listen to him. So Absalom has a barley field next door to Joab's barley field. And Absalom sets Joab's field on fire. Now he said, that'll get him to come. And Joab comes and he says, what are you thinking? He said, for years I've been trying to get you to make an appeal to my father. You won't even listen to me. You won't answer your mail. You won't return my phone call. So I decided to get drastic. Now get me into the king's presence. And Joab arranges it. Now here, you'd hope the story would end. <coughs> Amnon's died. Tamar's life is ruined. Absalom has been... Uh, uh, estranged from his father for like seven years. And so finally David receives Absalom and they embrace and it appears that father and son is reconciled. But let me tell you something, loved ones, something had taken root in Absalom's heart. Circumstances may change, but be careful. Has your heart changed also? The pivotal moments we have described in chapter 15. Absalom makes his move. Four years he lives restored to the king. He hires 50 men to run before him. Whenever he goes to the Circle K, 50 men run in front of his chariot, hailing Absalom. And, and, and Absalom, whenever someone would come to him as the son of the king, they would bow, but Absalom would grab them up and pick them up and hug them and give them a kiss on the cheek. That was a sign of familiarity and friendship. And he said, you know, I know you're here to see the king, but there's no time for him to really work with you about your problems. He's inaccessible. And the Bible says that between having men honor him every place that he went and making people feel that he was on their side and understanding that there was a problem with King David... The Bible says in this way, Absalom stole the heart of the people of Israel. Now, after four years, stay with me. We're almost to the life lessons. David, after four years, Absalom comes and says, says Dad, I would like to go to Hebron. And um, I would like to offer some sacrifices. I would like to have a time of devotion to the Lord. We might call it a prayer retreat. He said, I'd like to go to the prayer retreat in Hebron. And David probably thought, well, that's great. Hebron is where they welcome me as king. Surely they'll honor my son. So he goes there. 
and he begins to preach rebellion, a trumpet is sounding as Absalom declares himself king. We don't know how he found out about it, but it was obviously being circulated in Jerusalem because Ahithophel joined Absalom's rebellion. And the scripture says so many rallied to Absalom that he had a larger army in Hebron than David had in Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 15, 3, this is the word that comes to David. One day out of the blue, someone comes in and says, Oh, king, the hearts of the people are with Absalom. Now, we're going to see David abandon Absalom. This is where we're going to have to leave him. He, he, uh, he abandons Jerusalem, David does. He did that for several reasons. He wanted to spare the people of Jerusalem. They were for David. He wanted to spare the city that had become the capital city of the nation. He, he said, they will kill us. They will kill people. They will destroy the city. Let's leave. Leave the city to him. Sometimes the better part of valor really is to walk away. And uh, David said, well, I'm going to go into the Judean hill country. I lived there before. And if we need to fight, I have fought there before. You know, I don't know if this figured into it or not, but you read the life of David. David had never had to defend a city before. He was used to taking cities. He was used to fighting in the wilderness. Maybe he thought I stand a better chance of survival out in the Judean wilderness. But he left instructing 10 of his concubines to remain in the palace to care for it. I told you about Zadok and Hushai and Abiathar and their sons. And when David learned that Ahithophel, this was the death blow. This is portrayed in scripture as the moment when David said, this is more than a misunderstanding. He learned that Ahithophel had betrayed him and he prayed. Loved ones, can I tell you this? Don't cave into bitterness when your world collapses. That's, that's, your, that's your natural tendency. It's my natural tendency to think that the end of the world has come. David said the wisest man in all of the land has gone to the camp of my enemy. But this is what David said. Lord, let the counsel of Ahithophel seem as foolishness to Absalom and his advisors. He said, Lord, I know that Ahithophel is going to have a battle plan. We are outgunned. We're outnumbered. Thousands to a matter of hundreds. But you are able to take the wisdom of this man and make it seem like idiocy in the ears of Absalom. First Samuel, now in those days, the advice of Ahithophel was like one who inquires of God. This is how David and Absalom regarded Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel was key to the rebellion, but God was at work. On the way out of town, David encountered two prominent personalities as he crossed the Kidron Valley. Those of you that have been to Israel with me, when you're up on the Mount of Olives and you look and you see the mosque and you see the walls of the city, you're up on the Mount of Olives and then you look down, you see a valley and then it goes back up into the temple. That valley is the Valley of Kidron. That's where David was coming. And David met first of all Ziba, who was the servant of Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul. And Ziba, I mean Mephibosheth was not Ziba, but Ziba was the, you'd call him the estate manager for Mephibosheth. And Ziva brings food to David and David says, where's your master? Where is Mephibosheth? And he said, 
He's staying in town. He says, this is my chance to become king in place of my grandfather. And David says, well, everything that belongs to Mephibosheth belongs to you. Now, we're going to meet him on the way back in and see that not everything was as it seemed. Shimei was a man that verbally assaulted the king. He said, God has brought this on you. You are under the judgment of God. Have you ever noticed that's one of the first things your senses lean to when something goes wrong? I must have done something wrong. We're like the widow in the story of Elijah. Everything was great. She's eating from the provision of the Lord. She and her son are taken care of, but her son dies and her immediate response is, I knew that my sins would come back to visit me. Loved ones, let me say this. When your life is under assault, your senses are assaulted. You will be flooded by opportunistic people that arise out of the woodwork. Your old friends will seem to withdraw and your sources of strength crumble. Now David leaves and Ahithophel, when, as soon as Absalom gets in the palace... He says, this is what you need to do. And we read it about go and have sex with these 10 concubines. This will be the final breaking point between you and David. And everybody will see what you're doing. And they will know that there is no opportunity for reunion. Now, here are the four lessons I want to give you before we go. Number one, there is a time for mercy and there is a time of severity. This is one of the tough lessons for people that are judgmental, for people that are judgmental, um, they tend to gravitate immediately to the time of severity. For people that are mercy driven, they tend to want to keep giving chances and keep giving chances. It's been, it's been expressed this way. Almost everybody is either a lifeguard or an umpire. An umpire doesn't care what your motive is. An umpire doesn't care about extenuating circumstances. All an umpire cares about is the rules. And there are times you need umpires. But there are times you need lifeguards. You don't want a lifeguard that said, oh, excuse me, you idiots out there. We told you not to go out that far. Let's see what you can do about it. No, and a lifeguard, lifeguard may have a lecture, a lifeguard may ban you from the beach, a lifeguard may sit you down, but a lifeguard has one thing in mind, I've got to save them, both the wise and the foolish. David's inaction did not reform Amnon. It did not comfort his daughter. It did not resolve the issue with Absalom. David's inaction ruined the lives of three of his children. Now you say, well, God shows mercy. Yes, but God is perfect mercy, perfect judgment, perfect wrath, perfect justice, all at the same time. Now I want to just mention this before we get into next week, and this is one of those landmines. Parents, we need to beg God for wisdom to raise our children. I watch these parents pray for their children. It moves me every week when that happens. Parents should beg God for wisdom to raise our children. We need to ask God for forgiveness if necessary and do everything in our power to restore what may have been lost or stolen. Well, it was their fault. They started it. Is your child's life not more important to you than playing the blame game? Here's the second thing. 
There's a time for sternness. There's a time for mercy. Vengeance belongs to God alone. It is a process, a remedy so powerful that only God himself can handle it. Loved ones, I know, and especially when you pastor someplace for 25 years, you know that there are people that have carried uh, hurt and grudge and bitterness. They've carried it so long. And that's why God told us in Romans 12, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, you know what God says? He says, he says that revenge is a good thing. Now, that goes contrary to our teaching. He says revenge is a good thing, but it is such an intoxicating thing. It is such a powerful thing that no, listen, no human being can handle an act of revenge. We will taint it somehow and justice will never be done. He says, I am the only one that can enact revenge and it be done redemptively and correctly. Here's number three. God's kingdom is not the place for half-hearted discipline or half-hearted forgiveness. Mark Rutland in his book on David said this, if you have to cut the dog's tail off, don't do it by inches. Looking at it from another perspective, Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You know what Paul was saying? He says, if you're going to live in the family of God, then do what God did and forgive fully and completely. Don't try to do it by inches. And here's the last thing I want to say. There are times when friends will come out of the hills to stand with each other. I believe with all of my heart that what God is doing, I'm going to talk about this on December 29th when we look forward to the next year. I believe that God is bringing families back together. I believe he's restoring parents with their children. And I believe he's bringing broken and neglected friendships back together to those who are willing I think of Proverbs 17, 17. Listen to the power of this verse. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. When you have trouble, that's why God gave you siblings. That's why God gave you friends. You have your friends, you have your siblings because they are born to get one another through times of adversity. And I want to tell you, we, we talk about social media and the present culture bringing us closer together. It does not bring us closer together. It has the opposite effect. It pushes us further apart. It costs nothing to type a few lines. But it, it is an investment to spend time with someone. It's an investment to draw close to someone. And what you're going to see in this last uh, in, in, these, in these two sermons, today and next Sunday, what you're going to see is David's friends coming out of the woodwork and there's going to be something phenomenal that we see that is lacking in this culture. It's lacking in this culture. But look for God to begin to give you opportunity to reconnect with family and reconnect with friends. Not everyone's going to want to do it. 
I don't mean it's going to be like a, uh, you know, an old Disney Snow White movie where everybody's happy and healthy and rich at the end. But I'm telling you that God is bringing families back together. That's what Malachi said. Fathers would turn to their children. Children will turn to their fathers. Friends are born for adversity. In, in the book Centennial, it was made into a miniseries um, by James Missioner. There are two men that are thrown together, thrown together. And they, their, their friendship, which seems unbreakable, ends up being broken for years. And finally, when they come together for the last time, one of the men, his name's McKeague, he talks to Pascanel, and their, their differences are so deep. He says, let's, let, they, they were at a mountain uh, rendezvous, mountain man rendezvous, and he says, let's dance together. Let's dance the bitterness out. Let's dance the hatred out. Let's dance the unforgiveness out. And loved ones, this isn't the main point of the message, but God is going to invite you to a few dances. May not be literal dances, but God is going to arrange circumstances where we can let the bitterness go. Now, pastor, what do I do? You've, David's in a bad spot and you're going to leave me here. You expect me to enjoy Thanksgiving with David on the run. Well, I already told you he wins. And if you want to, you can cheat and read ahead. But loved ones, what this story of David tells us is that it's so easy to get bogged down with brokenness. And can I say this? With sin, with rebellion, with a desire for revenge, with bitterness. And what we see is that David's life that was a storybook uh, fantasy almost suddenly begins to collapse because God never intended his people to live under revenge, under anger, under unforgiveness, under bitterness. I'm giving you an opportunity today to, to approach the holidays as maybe you've been unable to approach the holidays in years. I'm giving you opportunity to say, I'm coming home, Lord. I'm gonna lay down my offense. I'm gonna lay down my need to be right. Lord, I'm going to lay down my demand for justice. I'm going to lay down my expectations of my children or my siblings or my wife or my husband. I'm just going to lay it down. You are good. Everything you do is good. And Lord, from this day forward, I'm going to walk in the blessing of the Lord. I'm going to walk in the forgiveness of God. Now, I know it's easier said than done. I know it's difficult to just walk away from stuff. And that's why we've got to have part two next week. But today, there's stuff that it's just begun to feel heavy. Every holiday season, it begins to feel heavy. Every uh, last week of November, you feel yourself walking like this because of the load we're under. And guys, we've got to let God set us free. We've got to let him set us free. Would you stand with me? In the name of the Lord Jesus, Father, we come to you now and we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. We ask for you to dig deep into our hearts. Father, some of us are so young that the, the pain is still fresh.
Some of us, what we've carried has begun to stink. We've carried it for so long. It has rotted on our backs. It doesn't even look like it used to look because it's been rotting all of these years, just producing stink and uncleanness and regrets. Father, set your people free. Set your people free. I'm going to ask the ministry teams to move uh, into position this morning. And the worship team is already set to begin to minister. I want to open the altars for those that would say, Pastor, I want to come. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. You may not want to tell your story. You may not want to specify what it is you're carrying, but you're saying, I want to let go of this. I want to head into the holidays, and I want my holidays to be holy days. I'm, I'm tired of carrying the chip on my shoulder. You may have been done wrong, but you're tired of letting someone else's problem create problems for you. He's the God who restores He's the God who helps. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's the ultimate step in the right direction. You can come to one of these ministry teams and just say, I want to know Jesus. They'll know how to pray with you. They'll know how to help you. Others may want to just come and wait in the presence of God. You may have a need that you say, I need someone to pray over me. Whatever it is, right now we're going to dismiss you. In 30 seconds, you're going to be free to go. But if you want prayer, we invite you to come. If you need to be prayed for, come. If you just want to worship God and ask the Holy Spirit to set you free, just come to the front and begin to worship Him. If you need to go, God bless you. We hope to see you here Wednesday night for Thanksgiving communion. But go your way in peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and give you peace. And some who need prayer before you go, would you come as we begin to worship and just wait in his presence. I love you guys. God bless you.